Courage, absolutely. But courage is the source of all great advocacy. Because uh, think of a chef, if I can analogize. I think the great chefs have courage too because they create, they come up with something new that other people aren't doing. You know, uh, a good advocate doesn't turn a bland vanilla piece of work. They actually zero in on, on the controlling idea and handle it in a very intense, intelligent way with thorough, thorough research, careful review of all the salient facts, maximizing their client's chances of success. And, and that approach, frankly, gives a flavor to the submission. Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. The Honorable Justice David Stratus sits on Canada's Federal Court of Appeal, and he's our first actively sitting judge on the podcast. Prior to his direct appointment, Justice Stratus enjoyed an accomplished career on Bay Street, where he is widely recognized as one of Canada's top commercial and administrative litigators. Join us as Justice Stratus offers rare insights into the Federal Court of Appeal, tips on advocacy and legal writing, legal education, as well as a discussion on the importance of transparency, consistency, and technology for the judiciary on this special episode of Of Counsel. Did you have this mapped out and thinking that once I've finished my clerking, I want to do this and I want to do this? No. No? No, not at all. I credit my family for this. I'm kind of a realistic, practical thinker. And I understood from a very early age that life does not proceed in a linear way, that there are many eddies and currents and you're swept in different directions. The fluke of having a great teacher, the fluke of uh, Bertha Wilson hiring you. I mean, you can't plan on these things. Uh, And there are setbacks along the way too. There are eddies and currents that you have to navigate. It's sheer folly to kind of say, okay, here's my plan for being a judge. And so you map it all out. That's sheer folly. My philosophy is uh, I'm on the open seas in a sailboat and the wind is blowing. I want to make sure that the sails are capturing as much wind as that possible. So so the, 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 the sailboat is moving as fast as it possibly can. Destination, I don't know. It's somewhere out there. I'm not going to go in a circle. So I keep my hand very steadily on the, on the rudder mm-hmm. and make sure I'm going in some direction. And if along the way you see an island, and you say, hey, you know what? Let's tour that. Right. But life, you know, is not predictable or linear. The best attitude is just to live it as fully as you can and hope for the best. Can I ask you, what is it like in a day-to-day as a federal court of appeal judge? What is it like? Well, it really, it really varies. And that's one of the fun things about it. First of all, the type of court I'm on, I'm on the federal court of appeal in the federal court system. And 
uh, an unusual feature of the court is, is we travel all across the country. We're an itinerant court. Since Canada is the second largest country behind Russia, and Russia does not have an itinerant court, we can fairly lay claim in the Federal Court of Appeal to be the most traveled appeal court in the world. So we have cases in 13 different centers across the country from coast to coast to coast. I have uh, weeks coming up in, uh, I have a week coming up in Edmonton and Calgary in the same week. I could be in Vancouver two weeks later. I could be in Toronto. I get to Toronto quite a bit. Halifax, Charlottetown, Fredericton, you name it. That's great. Uh, it's wonderful. And, yeah. and you get a view of the country the way I think only a campaigning federal politician <laughs> right. would see. You see so many parts of our beautiful country within a short period of time. And I can't help but uh, just marvel at the diversity of the country. So, so the first thing is, what's a typical day like? Well, you know, I'm not even sure what bed I may be sleeping <laughs> in, you know. It's very interesting. But um, we get our case books. Uh, for appeals maybe for three or four weeks in advance. And different chambers operate in different ways. What I like to do is I meet with my law clerk. We both tear into a, to a week of cases. And the aim is read the factums and judgments below quickly. And then we have what we call a screening meeting. And we try and triage the cases. There are some cases that we estimate don't need much pre-hearing work. Uh, there are cases that we might uh, suspect they're candidates for a from-the-bench disposition. There's other cases, though, that may have unresolved issues or things that, that we have to look into more deeply. Law clerk may get assignments. The law clerk may suggest things that I could usefully look at. And we basically come up with a work plan. Before the hearing, uh, we will have one or more other meetings to talk about the case. So in a typical day, I may be in a screening meeting or uh, I may be speaking with law clerk. Law clerk will, will join me some days for two or three hours, other days if I'm just writing, not at all. Another day in my life is, is writing. Some days I try to close the door and, and work on reserves. You need lots of uninterrupted time to write. Very important segment of, of the um, day of an appellate court judge is, is um, meeting and discussing with your colleagues. We sit in threes, and the discussions both pre-hearing and post-hearing about all manner of things, uh, it's constant and ongoing and frankly quite fun. Hearing days, I, I like to review everything before I get into the hearing room. Um, hit the hearing room. We have a conference after the hearing among the judges to try to see what common angles and positions we may have. Uh, and um, the, the day, the typical day is for me a long one. I try to get in shortly after seven in the morning. And uh, when I go home really depends, but it's usually not before six o'clock at night. Hmm. I ask you, when you know, we're trained as lawyers to um, prepare to argue and prepare to justify and prepare to parry. Um, whereas the transition, I presume, for a judge is it's almost the opposite. You're preparing to listen and to be open and to compromise. Did you find it? First of all, do I have that assumption right? And secondly, did you find whatever transition it may be to be difficult? Yeah, um, you're right. Uh in your question, in the presupposition in your question, but you're incomplete. 
there's another thing that's a marked difference. You see, as counsel, what you're trying to do is to maximize the chances of your client. And you are professionally a success if win or lose in the courtroom, you truly did maximize the chances of success of your client. A judge has to do something else. We don't just come up with an argument that's pretty good. We have to actually state correctly what the result is and the reasoning to get there, which means we have to get the facts and the law right. And there's a huge difference, much more than I had uh, thought before I was on the bench. There is a huge difference between maximizing, coming up with an argument that maximizes a client's uh, chances on the one hand and getting it right. The latter, far more stress. Mm -hmm. I will tell you that when I was appointed in December 2009, within three months, my blood pressure was up 20 points just as an indication of the stress. Mm -hmm. It's an extremely stressful job that the, the responsibility of getting it right with the knowledge at all times front of mind, you are affecting people's lives in a very serious way. And because you're on an appellate court writing jurisprudence, you're affecting tens, hundreds, thousands, perhaps more people's lives by the jurisprudence you write. It is scary. So what advice then would you have a lawyer coming before you uh, who's trying to be sensitive to the challenges that the court faces, but also trying to maximize a result for their client? What can they do to both help you, but also help their client? Is there a compromise? Yeah, well, I, I, I think so. And, and there's a perfect marriage of great advocacy and what's helpful to the judge. And this gets me into where advocacy sometimes fails. What most counsel do, and it's a safe strategy, is in an appeal, they'll write their factum, or we call them memoranda in the federal court system, and they hedge their bets. So they may argue, let's say they're good counsel, and rather than arguing eight issues, they argue only three. But in discussing the three issues, they kind of hedge their bets and write broadly to cover all aspects of the three issues. That's pretty good. And kudos for them for choosing only three mm -hmm. and having the courage <laughs> of selections. But great advocates go one step further. They understand that at the end of the day, cases truly turn on one or two very fine points. My friend, Justice John I. Laskin, calls it the controlling idea in an appeal. It's a great thing. You might liken it to the fulcrum on which the teeter-totter will go one way or the other. And if you think about it, when you see reported cases, there's usually one or two very fine, narrow issues that determine the whole ball of wax. What the best counsel do is they reverse engineer their cases. They say, here's the result I want. What do I need to get there? And they identify the one or two really significant points on which the appeal turns. And in their 30-page memorandum, they devote a solid 12, 13, 14 pages on just the tiny, fine idea. Mm. Not blah, blah, blah on the three general issues. Mm -hmm. What we love and what really facilitates our task is a lot of help 
on the real issues on which the case turns. But that must take an incredible amount of um, not just experience, but courage. Courage, absolutely. But courage is the source of all great advocacy. Because uh, think of a chef, if I can analogize. I think the great chefs have courage too. Right. Because they create, they come up with something new that other people aren't doing, and it tastes so damn good. <laughs> you know? Uh, a good advocate doesn't turn a bland vanilla piece of work. They actually zero in on, on the controlling idea and handle it in a very intense, intelligent way with thorough, thorough research, careful review of all the salient facts, maximizing their client's chances of success. And, and that approach, frankly, gives a flavor to the submission that's incredibly helpful. And, and why does flavor matter? And why does impact matter? One thing we do a lot of in an appeal court is we read and it's often in the evenings so for example this friday for an upcoming week of uh, hearings i'll be reading a set of factums for the first time and in that week i have 12 factums to read and i'm going to be there after dinner and i'm going to read them and this will take me into saturday and maybe sunday and at the end of the day, 12 factums, will I remember all of them? Well, with a little reminder, yes, I will remember them. But the best advocates who, who nail it, who choose an issue and deal with it in a really short, intelligent way, but very intensive way, who create a flavor or an mm -hmm. impact, I remember. Mm -hmm. I remember exactly what they say really, really well. How, though, does an advocate achieve that? Because I remember very clearly um, when you had uh, taught me at Queen's in advanced constitutional law, something that has stuck with me throughout my career is the value of understatement. And um, how does one balance that uh, um, particular tool of advocacy with making something stand out and not seem to come across as being um, exaggerating their point or just doing something to be bombastic? Right. To answer that, it's a great question. I'm, I'm going to try and deal with two things. I certainly will deal with the power of understatement, but I want to deal with a prior issue, which is very elementary and is often overlooked, and, and that is good writing. And good writing is simple, direct, and brief. And the number of counsel who write factums that are simple, direct, and brief is distressingly low. Those that do, that turn a complicated argument into, into what's essentially a, a, a brochure mm -hmm. that's readable, the ideas they express stick to our brain like crazy glue is in there. Short, direct, and brief is the key to success. And... Uh, if you're able to do that, simply the task of constructing a clear sentence and doing it again in the next sentence and the next sentence, just putting aside structural issues, you're probably in the 90th percentile of the profession in their writing. And so much of the process is, is written advocacy right now. Advocacy in the courtroom these days consists of two things. First, there's written advocacy, the factums and other court documents you file. And then there's oral advocacy. Now, if I use the analogy of a hockey game, 
Hockey game is 60 minutes with three periods. Let's now turn to the advocacy game and speak about it like a hockey game. Written advocacy comes first. My question to you, Sean, is how far into the game of advocacy, thinking about hockey, how far into that game do you think written advocacy takes the judges and the parties? Do you have a guess? Well, I mean, just from hearing uh, judges a lot, it, it seems like it takes you right into the third period. You bloody right, it takes you <laughs> into the third period. It absolutely does. My guess, and, I, and I've talked with, with judges uh, on other courts in my own court, and there's no universal view on this, but I'd say the average is eight minutes left in the third period. And as a lifelong passionate Toronto Maple Leafs fan, we all know that with eight minutes in the third period, the score is often New York Islanders five, Toronto two. Okay? So are the Leafs capable in the last eight minutes of the game, here the analogy is the oral hearing, will the Leafs come back and, and pop four goals in the net and win 6-5? Well, we haven't seen that too often. We've seen that done against the Leafs. But we don't see that very often by the Leafs. My point here is that uh, after reading the factums and memoranda, and we walk in a courtroom, there's eight minutes left in the third period, and, and, and believe me, there is a score. Mm-hmm. We prepare very hard on the Federal Court of Appeal. We know the cases, in some cases, better than the counsel do, to be honest. And there is a score, and somebody has an advantage. And it may be just the cards they were dealt with, they have a good case and they happen to be ahead, or they've been maybe very artful and skilled and have done a wonderful job and have a score that, that is better than what most counsel would do. But either way, there's a score. And the role of oral advocacy is to play the last eight minutes of that game. So in some cases, oral advocacy, I think, is very important in terms of giving people their say and giving clients uh, the satisfaction that the judges have been spoken to and are considering things. It gives us an opportunity to give people the difficult parts of their case and give them one last chance to deal with it. Uh, but to be frank, in a practical sense, oral advocacy in some cases doesn't matter because it's an imbalance since we already know who's likely to win. But in other cases, it's close, and oral advocacy makes a big difference. Have you ever seen a degree of mastery where they, the advocates have set up essentially the fulcrum point that you've you've talked about so that they know that yes the score is six two but they've set it up that way knowing that the strategy is the questions perhaps driven by understatement are going to be asked that they have a resounding answer for i mean is there a strategy that one can play knowing i don't think so i don't think there's a strategy you got to put forward your best foot in in written advocacy and, and I think it's true of most appellate courts. We are so dependent on written advocacy. Uh, those that don't put their best foot forward are at risk of having judges who, who might not uh, be as receptive to new arguments. I mean, a frequent thing that happens, we're concerned that if someone comes to an oral hearing and raises new things, we're worried new things being things not in their memoranda. We're concerned about whether the other side has had fair notice. So often we'll say, where is this in your memorandum? Right. You need to put forward your best foot in written advocacy because uh, two periods and 12 minutes of the hockey game will be played <laughs> then. Let me talk about understatement. You, you mentioned understatement 
as a tool of advocacy. And it's really, really true. Uh, take a case where a party, it's relevant to the legal issue, and the party is complaining about the other side's delay in civil litigation. There's two ways of explaining the delay of the other side. You can say, you know, the delay in this case is egregious. In my whole career, I've never seen such a delay. Well, right. when we get that, and I think you would react the same way if you were a judge hearing this, questions arise in your mind. Was well, it really egregious? Maybe it's just very bad or just bad. Why is it egregious? The worst he's seen in his career, gee, maybe she or he hasn't seen much litigation, because I've seen similar delay. And we start thinking these things. It's the overstatement or the naked, unsupported passion that causes us to wrestle with what's been said. And what I call that phenomena, where you say something and we have to wrestle with it, I call that anti-persuasion. Because rather than accepting what you say or being moved by what you say, we are fighting it. It's sort of like, you know, dragging a cat to a swimming pool. That cat doesn't want to go in the swimming pool and fighting every step of the way. This is what overstatement does. Uh, it causes judges to kind of resist. Here's what understatement does with the same problem of delay. The plaintiff served its statement of claim. A defense from the defendant was not received for six months after four letters were written. Then, after six letters, discovery dates were finally agreed to, but the defendant did not show. A further four months ensued, dot, dot, dot. You can see where this is heading. Absolutely. Now, in that submission, I didn't give you one adjective or adverb. I just gave the clinical detail, and that's a form of understatement. I'm just giving you the detail and really understate it. Now, what's, what's kind of skillful is the way in which I've juxtaposed the data as I've given it to you, but it's still understatement, not a single adjective. And you know what the judges do? The judges put it together and they say, hmm, four months, then another six months, then another six months. That's 16 months. <laughs> I think that's egregious. <laughs> okay, so we come up with the idea that you'd love to thrust on us. But you know what? Because it's our idea, it becomes our property. And studies show that ideas that we develop ourselves and hold on to become very difficult to dislodge. And that's the power of understatement. It empowers us to find in your favor and to make it difficult for the other side to steal the idea away from us because right. it becomes our idea. Yeah, I think that's 100% uh, correct. I, I, what some of the challenges we face. That's, as that's a, your experience? It is, absolutely. And, um, but that sometimes has to be balanced with, especially in criminal law, clients who like to see their lawyers say things like egregious and like to see their, their, their lawyers pound the desk. Well, well, here lawyers sometimes misapprehend their role. Their role is not to be a megaphone or a mouthpiece for their client. In a way, you're an interpreter mm -hmm. between the client and the judge. And your job is to take the data and the passions and the emotions of the client 
to filter and translate and transmit to the court, and the best counsel do that. Uh, the mistake, for the best of reasons, people are being loyal to their clients, but the mistake is to be a mere mouthpiece or megaphone. Mm-hmm. So what, maybe not one in particular, but what are the traits of some of the best facta you've ever seen? Um, is there one in particular that really stands out You think that was almost a profound reading to you? That um, I could name some. I think as a sitting judge, it would be uh, improper for me to name names. But I can tell you right now that people that write great factums uh, are known and remembered. Uh, as a matter of fact, when... I see names on factums even before I begin reading. It might be nine o'clock at night and I might straighten up on the couch and say, this is going to be a good read. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, it is. And and how good is that for counsel that you got a judge's attention and the judge is really keen to read your work? Uh, so that's the advantage of, of being good at writing. Um, look, the best factums are those that take masses and masses of difficult detail and difficult law and synthesize, and through the courage of selection and terrific writing techniques, they come up with something that reads like a brochure of, uh, say, you know, the page limit is 30, they come up with 16 or 17, and it absolutely nails it. And I will say this, although I won't mention names, in our court, the best factum writers are in the area of complicated corporate tax law and um, uh difficult, high-level intellectual property and patent law. And in both those areas, what's common to each is really difficult law and really complicated facts. And what these counsel have a knack for that's truly wonderful is to synthesize it, to take it from what really to most of us would seem like gobbledygook and to distill it in an ethical, accurate way distill it to its essence so that when it's transmitted to us, we really get it. And that's a wonderful art. What's um, very encouraging to hear, because this is something that as lawyers, we we never really get to peer into uh, the mindset of judges. Um, and I, I'm really appreciative that you're, you're unpacking a lot of that, just even, you know, picturing you reading this, these factums, uh, uh, at home, um, and the well, thread. that tells you, Sean. If I can interject, that tells yeah. you how you should write these things, because to read a factum in a difficult case, you need un- uninterrupted time. And frankly, during the day, you know, with colleagues walking around and things to do, and administration to do, and everything, and hearings and what have you, you don't have uninterrupted time. So when do we read? We read at night mm-hmm. when there's uninterrupted quiet time, and We're a little tired, to be honest. And think as well about the subject matter. When you wrote the factum, it's the only thing you're thinking about. But we're reading, as I said, a whole week of factums. I have 12 to read starting on Friday night. And they're in disparate areas of law. You know, from human rights to the rights of indigenous people to a standard of review question in administrative law to a self-represented litigant arguing uh, in favor of benefits from the Social Security Tribunal to a very difficult labor problem to a really difficult tax problem and then somebody has a patent problem. The different subject matters flitting back and forth to them tires the brain. So if you're dealing with a tired brain judge and it's inevitable because of the workload, how should you write it? 
clear, direct, and brief. Do that and we get it and get it good. <laughs> what do you get from all this legal education? It's clearly been very important to you throughout your whole career. Uh, you're very active teaching at Queens. You're even today participating in a podcast and passing on all these wonderful, wonderful lessons to um, people listening. Um, why do you do that? Well, uh, first of all, sense of obligation. As I explained earlier, uh, I'm very much um, the product of tremendous gift of great teachers who at self-sacrifice did so much to teach me. We haven't talked about people in the profession who took so much time. I had the honor of working with great lawyers, Eddie Greenspan, Harvey Strasberg, to name just two of many. Um, in, in other activities, conferences and the like, I worked with just some fabulous judges who would take time to teach, like uh, Justice John Ilaskin, Kathy Feldman, uh, the late Marvin Katzman, the late uh, Mark Rosenberg, two wonderful people that we never should have lost. Uh, so I feel a sense of obligation to do what they did, to spend the time, to teach, to shed light uh, where there is no light about what judges do and how people should practice. Uh, I'll tell you another reason, Sean. Um, at a higher plane, think for a minute about what makes human beings so special compared to all other animals. We do one thing that all other animals don't do. I believe we are the only species that takes the values, know-how, and technology. We spend our lives improving it accepting and refining, developing new ones, discarding bad ones, improving all of that as best as we can. And then our job and what we do is we transmit to the next generation so that they can accept or reject, refine, develop, invent, and do more. No other species does that. Mm. And so what's happening in a very real way is our species, humanity, is evolving and developing far beyond where we were not so long ago. And it gets, frankly, better and better and better. And how do we transmit knowledge, know-how, and technologies to the next generation? Teaching. Mm. Now, if you accept what I say, then teaching is the most quintessentially human trait we have. I want to be a part of that. I'm the beneficiary of it. I wish to be a donor. One thing that's um, a little unique is that that teaching uh, is not um, as common coming from the bench. And it seems from what you're saying that um, judicial outreach in teaching these lessons is an important thing. Uh, is, can, do you I, think can, I, can I differ with that a bit? Sure. I'm very visible. Um, but there's a lot that people don't see. There are some very uncelebrated heroes in the judiciary. There's a whole level of education that you don't see, and that's judicial education run through great organizations like the NJI and the CIAJ. And the best legal conferences I've ever been to have been judicial conferences where judges, usually the most experienced and learned of our profession, teach other judges. 
And, and so I'm just very visible, but there are uh, tens, if not over a hundred judges who, who spend a lot of free time donating their time to uh, train and develop judges. And all of that is not seen. Right. But do you not think that perhaps more can be done with, uh, like you're doing, with transparency of the bench in the sense that the public, um, I think, has some problems understanding how judges think and where judges' uh, reasoning is coming from and, and, frankly, what is going on in court. And this is all levels of court. I mean, the most transparent would be the, tra- the Supreme Court of Canada because we can actually watch it. But every other aspect of court, and this is something that I've always had a problem with, that there's no real um, lens into it, literally and figuratively, aside from, you know, if you want to sit and read the Court of Appeals website or go physically to courts. Do you see um, some room for that? Yes, uh, but there's an attitude uh, in the judiciary uh, that I don't agree with. Uh, and I think more and more um, people within the judiciary may be querying this. There's a very important constitutionally guaranteed concept called judicial independence. We have to be separate and apart. We have to have privacy over our preparations and deliberations. So right now I'm carrying probably uh, 15 upcoming cases in my head from things I've been reading and I've got reserves on my mind, cases we've already heard. So I'm carrying a lot of data in my head. That must remain absolutely secret. Mm -hmm. And we have to have the privacy to have private deliberations and discussions and do the right thing, independent from any further lobbying or influence, to decide without fear or favor based on the facts and the law. In reaction to that concept of judicial independence, traditionally people have thought a brick wall is necessary, that we need to be hived off and and invisible and completely cloistered from the public we serve and the stakeholders in the, in the judicial system. I, I and others think t- times have changed. Rather than a brick wall, I would prefer to see something more like a chain link fence mm-hmm. where you get to see in. And the important value of judicial independence that I explained is maintained, but things are demystified. And the reason why we have to demystify uh, is this. We live in an era where if you're behind a brick wall, people will want to tear down the brick wall. We live in a critical era where people assume the worst when you're not seen behind a brick wall. When I look at, uh, you know, as you get older, you call 20-somethings kids. So when you look at kids these days, if you're not visible on the internet, you're not meaningful and you don't exist. That's the world we're in. And so the era where we can sort of stay cloistered and get respect just because we, we, we dress in black robes like Darth Vader without the mask and come into the courtroom, you know, and get respect. I, I mean, I mean th- those days are behind us. I think the public wants to see a measure of transparency. So, so far in, in, in your questions, I have absolutely no concern discussing what I've just discussed. 
Right. right. And, and I would say in fairness, it's certainly not limited to the bench either. Lawyers themselves are very walled up and Absolutely. and don't want to be transparent about the way they go about processes. And often there's an attitude of trust us, we'll take care of it. Absolutely. And the public won't stand for it. I, I mean, we all serve the public in both professions, but the public is saying, uh, show us. You know, they no longer respect the fact that a lawyer is just a well-dressed person with, with terrific clothes uh, and all this education. Uh, no, they want to see service. They want to see uh, that your duties are being discharged. And visibility in the discharge of, of our duties, I think, is very important. Do you think there's, um, in achieving these goals and certainly many others in the evolution of law, um, I know technology is very important to you. Mm-hmm. And uh, what has been quite striking to me, and uh, I think uh, very encouraging, is the federal court has been very, um, at least relative to other courts, very open to embracing technology, and not just embracing it, but insisting upon it. And what lessons have you uh, seen from that embracing? Yes, many. Um, First of all, we amended our rules. I I, uh, just left the Rules Committee, but I've been on the Rules Committee in our court the last eight years. Um, The Rules Committee uh, is dedicated to the use of technology, and it's a very good committee with wonderful people. And we came up with rules and passed them to facilitate things like electronic filing and so on. The, the bad news, though, is that we have not received the funding to build the computer infrastructure to do electronic filing. So we have a practice direction that actually suspends some of those rules. But that being said, uh, we are flexible. And in large cases, people ask to file electronically rather than in paper, and we can make uh large largely we can accommodate that there's a few things that some judges on the federal court of appeal insist be in paper form but certainly increasingly we are seeing our records more and more in electronic form but with funding we're ready to go people will be able to do the entire case electronically now i can tell you um me and some others are largely electronic um, the paper is scanned for me. We have access to electronic uh, materials. In this iPad that uh, I have sitting in front of me that you're seeing right now, uh, it's stuffed full of records and other things for upcoming cases and past cases. Uh, only, only public materials uh, are there on electronic form. And so uh, I work electronically. Uh, I annotate, I mark up, I send things to law clerk, I send to colleagues. It's just a world of convenience and, and uh, efficiency. I'll tell you another thing that um, we're doing, uh, and I'll give you an example. Um, there's the big pipeline dispute out west, the Trans Mountain Pipeline case. And right now in our court, and it's under reserve, is a question of whether the National Energy Board's approval of that pipeline uh, stands and, and uh, you know, it can stand. Uh, and on the other side of the argument are indigenous uh, groups and environmental groups who are complaining that environmental standards and the uh, duty to consult indigenous people uh, uh, were not satisfied. That's under reserve in the court. I had... Uh, uh, I would say the privilege of case managing that case 
um, when leave was granted to the various uh, applicants to, to bring these challenges in our court, um, I basically was responsible for getting the case uh, from notice of appeal through to ready for hearing in a case that has hundreds of thousands of documents and multiple parties and multiple proceedings and really complicated legal issues, issues of admissibility of evidence and so on. I prepared an order, like if we were to follow our standard rules, it would take two or three years, but everyone in the case accepts that there's a public interest in prompt disposition. So I engineered an order which got the case ready in five months despite all of those difficulties. And one of the things that made it possible was the use of technology, the use of electronic materials. In fact, to serve just one illustration, the order contained a provision that parties could serve each other by creating a room in Dropbox and uploading their materials into Dropbox and that would constitute service. And so if you wanted the materials, just go into that room in Dropbox and pull it, right? Rather than the rigmarole of of serving parties with physical paper and volumes and volumes, then proof of service, then shipping the whole thing in paper form to Ottawa and, you know, uh, trying to get it past the file clerk and so on. We just completely circumvented that. I wonder if that's ultimately what it takes, though, is is an actual order and orders. Because um, I've found with lawyers, if given the choice between change or remaining the same, the option is almost always the latter, is I'll continue to serve in a paper format. It's interesting, though. No, I, I think, Sean, I, I disagree a bit because I think lawyers are changing. And yeah. I will tell you, the, the lawyers on this file uh, were remarkable in the extent to which they complied with the order and, and worked with it and made it efficient. So, so by no means am I taking credit for this moving quickly. I designed the process, but more difficult was for everyone to follow the process. And uh, uh, they did a spectacular job, I must say. Do you feel that perhaps there's, in addition to lawyers, there's, there's at least an openness from the bench in general that this is a good thing? Um, I'll be honest, uh, anecdotally, I'd say it's mixed. You see, some people have worked with paper all their working lives, and they were appointed to the bench and were working with paper, and this electronic stuff is newfangled and alien to them. There's the old adage that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Now, I'm making cruel, stereotypical statements here. It's not true of everyone. Of course but you get, we've all seen people in their lives, there are people that are resistant to technology. Right. And um, so by no means is there universal acceptance. I would say, as a, there are exceptions, but I'd say as a general matter, newly appointed judges who have worked with technology as lawyers uh, are, are much more amenable to the use of technology. But it seems safe to say that for those courts throughout the country, not the federal court, but all the other courts, from your perspective, there are immense benefits that come from moving to no, moving to an electronic system. I'm a convert. Well, I converted long ago as a lawyer. <laughs> right. I'm a, perhaps an example of someone who worked with technology as a lawyer and brought that onto the bench, and that's happening more and more. But uh, no question, technology is the way to go. I mean, I can sit in a hearing, and I have done this, where... Council will mention a case in the middle of submissions. It's not in the book of authorities. And I think, well, that's not right. So I have on my iPad and I furtively type 
And then I say, well, counsel, can I come back to the point you just deployed 40 seconds ago? Didn't the Supreme <laughs> Court in such and such in paragraph 67 say X, Y, and Z? Now, I look really smart, but I've got a smart iPad. <laughs> that's what's going on. But, I mean, that's, a, that's an example of how technology uh, can add a benefit. Another thing is that I can, I, I don't do it very often, but I can sometimes send a brief note to the law clerk um, during the break, can you bring me X, Y, and Z? Right. You know, so I can look at something and the clerk will scurry out and and get it. So I have, you know, in the break, I might have a minute or two to look at something. Well, I really hope that courts uh, start to see, because, you know, like you, we've... Uh, long been converts of technology and the benefits from it are immense and it almost gets to the point where it's paper seems foreign and odd and artificial well you certainly get used to the electronics and paper does seem uh, foreign the important thing here is for um, uh, the governments that fund the courts and fund the uh, find fund the justice system to understand the efficiencies of technology which means a big upfront cost uh, but the dividends come later in a big way. So let's talk about um, life dividends uh, outside of law. What do you do uh, outside of law to sort of have some balance and escape factum reading incessantly? Well, uh, Sean, those who are friends of mine and know me just laughed because <laughs> uh, I am no poster child for balance. Uh, I'm admitted workaholic. Uh, I spend a lot of time reading about law, writing about law, speaking about law, thinking about law. I'm pretty boring in that sense. Um, I do have a, I, I do have uh, a couple of passions. Um, I love horse racing. I remember that from Advanced Constitution. Yeah, how did that show in Advanced Con? <laughs> well, you and uh, Professor Mullen were always talking about horse racing, and I did, wasn't quite in on the conversations, but I remember that coming up almost every class. He's a great horse fan and another fantastic role model. Um, he and I and some others go to Saratoga in New York to to uh, enjoy the horses. I love horse racing. Uh, last weekend, I I went to the Preakness and. Uh, two weeks Saturday, I'm going to the Belmont to see if the horse called Justify wins the Triple Crown. Uh, I don't think he will. He's a bet against, but I'll be very happy if he wins all the same. Uh, but it is a passion uh, that I get to indulge in once in a while. I, I think, to be honest, um, I have very few passions outside law, but as far as I get is teaching and writing, mm-hmm. uh, still about law. But to get out and about, to help join that human effort of educating the next generation. That I just adore. And to me, that's as good as a rest. So on that, uh, the next generation, where do you see us going? Where do you think the future of law is going to be in the next 5, 10, 20 years? Are, are lawyers even going to be around? Is it something that's going to be taken over by AI? Or you know? I've been reading about that, and it's fascinating, isn't it? I wouldn't, I wouldn't speculate about that. I have to admit, I don't know enough to speculate about that future. Um, Is there something you would like to see in the next five years change? Yeah, let me perhaps go to a real concern I have. And I've spoken and written about the concern. Uh, if people want on on, in, on YouTube in January uh, 2016, I gave a speech at a conference, it's on YouTube. And it's on something that I call the death of doctrine. 
I'm increasingly concerned that in many areas of law, administrative law being my passion, we're not seeing courts do enough to develop, refine, and most importantly, follow legal doctrine. That instead, we're developing tests that are, you know, whatever's fair Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. And increasingly, rather than following the wisdom and constraining effective doctrine, uh, judges are basing public law decisions in particular on the basis of their own worldviews, their whims, their ideologies. Um, there's something very bad about that. It affects the predictability of law. Right. It also hits directly at the rule of law. The law should be stable within reason so that like people are treated in like ways. I'm concerned, and and I deployed this in my speech in January 2016 uh, that attracted some controversy. I'm concerned at the extent to which precedent is being departed from, that uh, courts will will turn on a dime. Uh, Look at, for instance, the jurisprudence under uh, freedom of association and how much it's changed since the Labour Trilogy in 1987. And so I'd like to see a return, and I've written about this, about a return to fundamental principles and developing our operative rules in law from fundamental principles and sticking by what we decide. I wrote in March 2016 a rather controversial article on administrative law where I took basically the ideas in that January speech and applied them to administrative law. And I commented that Canadian administrative law for the last 40 years resembles a never-ending construction site where something's (laughs) built and then 10 years later somebody tears it down and then they build something else and they tear it down and then they build something else and they tear it down. And this is a problem, as I explain in the article. And so the struggle in administrative law in particular is to find a permanent, lasting regime uh, to order administrative law so that the law becomes certain, predictable, and ultimately fair to all litigants. And so all of this has culminated in in two further articles that came out uh, just a month or two ago. Um, In administrative law, there's the Dunsmuir case, which kind of sets out the methodology for how to do judicial review, and importantly, what the standard of review should be. In other words, how fussy or how strict courts should be when reviewing decisions. And we saw on Twitter, uh, at least among almost every civil litigator who does this type of work, uh, it just blow up in the in the announcement that the Supreme Court is going to revisit this decision. Well, yes, I'll get to that. It's, it's a fascinating and good development. But in, in I think it was around March... Uh, two wonderful scholars, Paul Daly, who has the Administrative Law Matters blog, and Leonid Sirota, who has the Double Aspect blog, they co-hosted an online symposium about Dunsmuir. This was before the Supreme Court said anything. And in all, 40 articles from leading academics and lawyers across the country contributed uh, were contributed. I wrote two. The first one was essentially a criticism of Dunsmuir. 
And the criticism of Dunsmuir in simple terms, and this is on the um, administrative law blog of uh, Paul Daly, Administrative Law Matters, is that over the last 40 years, what happens is a group of judges have their own personal views about what the relationship between the judiciary and the executive should be. And they reach a compromise and they deduce operational rules from their own views of how it should work. The problem is when the next group of people come in, they have different views and we see these revisions. So I made the point in my second article, which is published on the um, Leonid Sirota's blog, Double Aspect, I published an article that said, okay, what's the solution? And I, I propose this. The solution is to identify fundamental constitutional principles that we can all agree to. And they exist. They absolutely exist. One is the rule of law. The other is parliamentary supremacy. The third is the role of courts and the executive in the separation of powers. And the fourth is the um, fundamental idea that there's a hierarchy of legal ordering, the constitution, statutes, courts, and so on. I take these four principles and the article deduces operational rules from those agreed upon concepts and then takes the operational rules and says, is there, are, are there any judicial policies such as the need for efficiency in litigation? You would call them the Hriniac factors. Are there any judicial policies that might cause us to modify our operational rules? I happen to think, look, people may well disagree with how I went about it in the second article, but I think the methodology is right. The only way to have a lasting administrative law is to think doctrinally, to start with the fundamental principles that animate the whole area, deduced from them in good faith, operative rules that must follow from those principles, mm -hmm. and then ask ourselves, to make it work what judicial policies need to come to bear. Now, as you pointed out, the Supreme Court has now announced uh, about six weeks, I'm not implying a cause and effect, but with about six weeks after that online symposium is done, the Supreme Court has announced that, uh, that uh, they're going to be looking at whether uh, the Dunsmuir framework should be revised. I applaud them uh, for doing that. Uh, my only wish is that at the level of doctrine, they build something based on fundamental agreed upon principles rather than their own particular. Yeah, it's it's encouraging to hear that. And it seems as though uh, with uh, now Chief Justice Wagner's um, approach to try and open the courts and make them more simple, um, perhaps we're in for exactly what you're describing. Let's see. I hope so. Um, but I really applaud them for taking this on. You know, as you're saying this, it's so interesting because I've I've often uh, seen the problem, but I've, I've never heard it articulated and thought through with, in such depth because the same issues apply very much to criminal law. Indeed. That, absolutely. absolutely. And, you know, I'm finding more and more um, when clients come into our office and they ask me, particularly in charter litigation, what's going to happen? My answer is I have no idea. And as a lawyer who's been doing it for a long time, this is that should not be my answer. Especially in a field criminal law like the rest of public law. I mean, we're looking at, at the fundamental human rights and civil liberties of the right. subject vis-a-vis -vis state power. And, and we need certainty there. You know, my point in the January 2016 speech, I began with this scenario. Suppose 
you know, everything's kind of calm and good right now, but suppose in 20 years there's a civil emergency and then the right. government has to crack down and all of a sudden an issue explodes in the courtroom that's deep and fundamental mm-hmm. uh, and controversial like you wouldn't believe, like something we've never seen, and some judge has to decide the matter. Do you want that judge to decide on what's fair and equitable to her or him? Or do you want that judge to rely on age-old, well-developed, settled principle? And I will tell you that the latter will lead to a decision that will be respected far more than someone having their say. As you're saying this, like I, I, I start to realize the value of uh, the case, the age-old case of Hunter and Southern, where there was this presumption that if there was a warrantless search, it's presumptively unreasonable. And that gave a lot of certainty on a lot of key issues. And yes, we can argue the details from there, but at least there was uh, a pivot point from it that we could move from. And a lot of that has now been uprooted and uh, it's, it's very hard to navigate. So um, I think there's a lot, of, a lot of tremendous value to what you're saying. Well, there's there. a tremendous value in stability, isn't yes. it? And, and the Supreme Court's wrestling with it. If you just look at uh, their decisions on the role of their own precedent and when they should depart from precedent. Mm-hmm. They've actually said a number of different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm not even sure yet that they've worked out a common vision of certainty and the value it ought to play in our system. And do you think law can keep up with this complexity? Because that's part of the issue, isn't it? Is that, that the world has become so complex. You know, that- there's a bigger question. It's related to what you said. Can law keep up? Sure it can, because judges can be very innovative. The, the bigger question is, can courts keep up? Mm-hmm. We have a huge problem across the country, and it's judicial complement. What most lawyers and the public don't know is how hard judges work in an extremely stressful environment. On the Federal Court Appeal, we need more judges. Um, Our health, some of our healths suffer. We're working so hard. We need more people. Here's the problem, and it's related to the question you asked. If you're a bean counter, you'll look at the number of cases we decided compared to five years ago, and you'd say, comparable. So why do you need another judge? The problem isn't the quantity of cases, it's the quality of cases. Life is more complicated, as you just suggested. So, you know, eight and a half years ago when I was appointed to the bench, the only cases involving indigenous peoples that I saw were disputes over elections in bands, which are very, very important, but they're relatively narrow and don't take too much time to analyze and deal with. Now, the rights of indigenous peoples, their rights vis-a-vis environmental groups and, and other interests, and the interests of governments that want to build infrastructure. We are seeing this over and over and over again. And boy, are they complex cases. Mm-hmm. And nine years ago, they didn't really exist. Now, oh my God, and we have basically the same number of judges to deal with this. And that's just one area that's gotten more. Right, because it's pervasive. It's it's the same uh, problem in superior courts with judges who, 20 years ago, a murder trial would take two and a half weeks. Now it takes two and a half months on a on a on a speedy uh, pace uh, because of cell phones and and technology and gigabytes of data that has to be analyzed and so on and so forth. Exactly right. So where are the new judges? I mean, that's a key to a lot of things. 
Sean, can I raise one other thing just about judicial compliment because it's very critical. Increasing judicial compliments, uh, the number of judges on a court, is useful not just to progress cases in a prompt, efficient, and proper way, but it's essential for another reason, and that's access to justice, largely, largely writ. There are so many good ideas out there about improving access to justice, improving court procedures, and the like. Um, We see all these conferences. We see the wonderful work of Justice Cromwell, you know, in particular. Uh, We see so many terrific academics like Professor Farrow at at Osgood studying various aspects of the problem. And that's just, there there are many others who are doing terrific work and coming up with great ideas. The problem is implementation. You know, all these great ideas, here's the problem. Internally, someone at a court, a judge, is going to have to shepherd the process of writing the rule or internally getting the judges to agree that a particular procedure should change or uh, liaising and dealing with others, dealing with legislative drafters Mm -hmm. and the like. This takes time. So on the Rules Committee, I regret to say, we've had some really great ideas. I chaired a a policy committee in 2012, and the recommendations from that policy committee in 2012 are not fully implemented. And it's not because people are lazy or inattentive. Where's the time? If I'm working 80 hours a week just to barely get everything done in my regular job, where am I going to find the time to shepherd through a reform? Right. Especially coming from someone like yourself, who is admittedly a workaholic who does almost everything law. And if it can't be done with a judge with a work ethic like you, uh, I can only imagine. So do you see many, many of my colleagues have the same work ethic. So there's no work around me. I, I mean, others don't have the time either. We need more judges. Do you think that is one of, if not the fundamental problem with access to justice right now? I happen to think so, along with physical facilities like courtrooms. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it's just uh, uh, for some reason, I'm not going to speculate as a sitting judge, but for some reason, the funding of the justice system, you know, is is an ongoing concern. Every once in a while, there are judicial eruptions where a chief justice will speak out about a particular problem. Um, but, uh, you know, a justice system like a, like a sensitive plant needs constant watering, care, and attention. And if you neglect it, it begins to suffer. Right. And I certainly, uh, you know, um, see... But of course, you know, to be fair, I can see the problem of government and all the countervailing things that they have to fund. So it's it's not like I'm seeing this as a one-sided issue. It's a very challenging world we live in. Yeah. Yeah. But it must be challenging for the bench because unlike politicians who can get before the news at any point in time and claim their shortcomings here or even interest groups who can do that, uh, the bench, for good reason, of course, is far more reserved in what they can and can't say in seeking funding. And uh, it it is unfortunate that there isn't just an automatic uh, recognition among public people. the public that this value is so critical to our democracy and to a proper functioning justice system. But Agreed. But, you know, here's where to bring the discussion into a circle. The discussion we had earlier about transparency, Mm -hmm. about 
being more visible in how the system operates and what we do might engender among important opinion centers in the public, might engender a greater appreciation of why more funding is needed. Well, whatever we can do. One podcast at a time. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Justice Stratus, for joining us. Uh, I, I can't tell you how thankful we are. Uh, and I'm sure that um, your uh, message will be heard by many, and hopefully it makes a difference. It's such a pleasure, Sean, and uh, thank you very much for having me.